0: So I'm delighted to have a few minutes to chat with Aminata Fauna ahead of our launch event this evening. And I'd like to spend this time focusing on your memoir, The Devil That Danced on the Water, which was published in 2002. And it was obviously written after you returned to Sierra Leone after 25 years to find out about what happened to your father. And it's it's an incredibly powerful personal account, but it also engages with the after effects of, of the more recent civil war as well um and from rock, from from what i've read by Rwandan women survivors of the 1994 genocide it seems there's this tension between wanting to know and not wanting to know what happened so between remembering and not wanting to remember so and do you feel a similar tension in relation to to Sierra Leone
1: no <laughs> the short answer i always wanted to know and i always wanted to remember um of course, twenty-five years was the period from when my father died to um, when I was right when I went to write the book. But I'd always been going to and from Sierra Leone. There was a period of the war, of course, when I when I was cut out, and like a lot of people, I had this uh, pent up urge to to go home. Um, but of course, when the fighting was on, most of us were obliged to stay away. But no, now either because of my nature, which I think is I was a very curious child um, and I was drawn into journalism I think by that same curiosity about the world. I always wanted to know. The second thing is this, that uh, I grew up in a culture of silence around what had happened and so the silence acted as a provocation and breaking that silence was something that I very much wanted to do. And I talk about three kinds of silence um, in some of my other writing I talk about the silence of oppression, that people can't talk about these things because we lived under a dictatorship. And I talk about the silence of trauma, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right, because um, people are too... it costs them too much emotionally um, to talk. And then there's also the silence of complicity so all of these silences were um, coexisting in sierra leone at that time i've never really been one for silence and i've always been one for breaking silences so <clears throat> i didn't f- personally know i did see that in the country i did see that tension between mm. those who wanted to remember and talk about it, and those who didn't. But I will say that the people who didn't want to talk about it were the traumatised and the complicit. Mm. Everybody else wanted to talk about it.
0: And to some extent that you were speaking on behalf of of other people who had traumatic experience about it. I didn't do that consciously, no. no.
1: I wrote the book really um, to find out what had happened to the country. Mm. I construed it as a personal narrative. I said it was our story, it was an alternative uh, narrative to the both the narratives of the official government narratives of the country and also the narrative of journalists who had, had given um, a thin uh, lacking account of, of the war. But no I didn't at that point feel that I was speaking on behalf of the traumatised I was doing a work of investigation really and of exposing um, the fact that uh, you know, in the—I mean, don't forget—I wrote it in 2002. So many years have intervened. The fact that it has acted that way, it ha- has acted to build resilience and open dialogue, um, as have my other novels, as have the work of other artists in that country, playwrights and filmmakers and poets. That all of these things have have worked together to to do that. Uh, came secondary to me. It was not my primary intention.
0: Mm. And we did speak earlier, actually, about the, the relationship between trauma and resilience and narrative. And So what do you think it is about narrative in particular that helps to build resilience? Well, my guide on this
1: uh, expressed... I mean, he's a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, and he, uh, his parents were killed in the death camps in... Um, the Second World War, he survived on the streets, um, and he joined the resistance when he was very young, and then he began to work with Holocaust survivors, and he realised basically who, he began to figure out who had resilience and who didn't, and they, and apply that in his own clinical work, and where he found the resilience was people who were able to own their own narrative. They were not told what their story was, or how that, um, uh, how, or indeed how they felt about it, they owned their own story and they had their own narrative that they'd constructed for themselves in the context of that narrative. And those were the ones who uh, emerged strongest. And that speaks to me at a very simple level. It just speaks common sense to me, right? Mm-hmm. That if somebody calls you a victim and tells you that you are, are damaged or that your life is ruined... um. Then that can create a context for you that's very hard to emerge from. If you look at yourself rather, and of course, this is why people started calling people survivors, not victims. If you look at yourself instead and say I was the boy who fought the German army and joined the resistance, I was the boy who survived. I was the boy who did this. Then
0: you create a completely different narrative for mm. yourself. Yeah, and um, just to to finish, uh, there were there were two people in the in the book who really stood out in my memory, and I suppose. You could say they, they were two people who demonstrated an incredible amount of resilience. But it's the man in a wheelchair who you end up giving a lift home, and then you meet his wife whose who's feet have actually been cut off, and th- and they've just had a baby. And I remember your description of the women's injuries in particular is just horrifying and almost unbearable to read. But nonetheless... The, the way they talk about their lives and the, this image of, of them as a, a family with a new baby, it's, it's quite a hopeful picture, an image of life carrying on, of being rebuilt, of, of looking towards the future. So do you feel that hope um, for Sierra Leone? Well, I certainly do. I think Sierra Leone's yeah. done a magnificent...
1: uh, a job of of reconciling itself to its past. Absolutely outstanding Um, and I think also that one must remember that in any post-conflict society it's very easy from the outside to imagine everybody is wandering around in a state of um, enduring misery, but actually life goes on and people get on with life and all through the war and after the war people fed and love, got married, had babies, uh, did all those things. And also for them they were happy for all the reasons you know because the war was over so they were in a very uh, um they were in a place where they felt very positively um you know Achebe writes about um western ideas of Africa and one of the things he says every African has to do when they meet a European even if we haven't sort of totally imbibed the the view of Africa the Franz Fanon um, you know self hating self defeating view, uh, but he says you know you always have to fight what they think about um, africa and i 've always found in my books and I, and I return to this in the memory of love this assumption that this country has been completely and, and all its inhabitants completely destroyed by it, what has happened is a mistaken assumption. People displayed astonishing resilience and, and the desire to live and continue and and build and create lives which you find there today